Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from the thriller Minority Report, made in 2002. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. John Williams' hands were tied, metaphorically, when the time came to write the score for Steven Spielberg's science fiction film Minority Report. He's usually prepared to write music for a Spielberg film as the movie is completing production, taking the time to get a feel of the film's pace based on early edits of certain scenes and conversations with Spielberg. But with Minority Report, Williams was approaching this assignment about two months later than he would have wanted, spending the first two months of 2002 recording the score for Attack of the Clones and debuting his Winter Olympics theme. In order to have the score ready for recording no later than mid-April, Williams had to work fast on the Minority Report score. On the surface, this would have been a great opportunity for a composer. The plot of Minority Report revolved around a system that prevented murders thanks to visions by the three so-called precognitives who could identify murders before they happened. Tom Cruise is the top officer in the department charged with arresting the people who had planned to murder someone, then put them in a sort of jail for an undetermined amount of time. But the system is turned upside down when the precogs have a vision that Tom Cruise's character will commit a murder and the movie follows Cruz as he tries to avoid the murder scene while also finding himself drawn to it at the same time. The plot lends for some great music to accompany it. Cruz was the one to bring the story to Spielberg's attention in the early 1990s, but the script wasn't ready, and neither was Spielberg. Fast forward to 2000 when Cruz was serious about making this his follow-up to Mission Impossible 2, though he had to wait for Spielberg to finish AI in early 2001. Once that was completed, Spielberg went to work consulting with so-called futurists who helped shape the technology and design of the film. Not a lot of the film was shot on studio sets, preferring a lot of the action to take place in real buildings, such as the Ronald Reagan Building in Washington, D.C., and several surrounding neighborhoods in D.C. and Los Angeles. This was Spielberg's goal all along, to make the film grounded in the reality of a dirty alley or lakeside home. Filming was done in summer 2001, plenty of time for the visual effects artists to do their work. This meant Spielberg was ready to show a full edit to Williams as early as Thanksgiving 2001. But as I mentioned, Williams was immersed in Star Wars at the time, and all indications are that he was never able to work on two film scores at the same time. The conversations between Spielberg and Williams over the score turned to tone, specifically the desire to make this feel like a futuristic film noir. Imagine 2001 A Space Odyssey meets The Maltese Falcon. Spielberg wanted the music to accentuate this noirish feel, and luckily Williams knew exactly what template to draw from for his score. Williams' longtime friend and mentor, the great Bernard Herrmann, 
had become somewhat of a celebrity in the 1950s and 1960s with scores for film noirs directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Under Herman's tutelage in the early part of his career, Williams learned a lot about tone in film scores and had used it to great effect in the 42 years of his career at this point as a film composer. Williams achieved bigger success than Herman mostly because of his use of melodies to capture the essence of characters or places. But in the late 1990s, Williams shifted to using tone and rhythm more to create music for atmosphere. This style of music is somewhat easier to write based on conversations I've had with current and future composers. And it came in handy with Minority Report because it allowed Williams to work quickly to get the score produced. In the liner notes of the first CD release of the score, Spielberg said, quote, Unlike our other collaborations, John's score for Minority Report is not lush with melody. It is nonetheless brilliant in its complexity and forceful in its rhythms. If most of John's scores for my films have been in color, I think of this score as his first in black and white. End quote. This is a mostly accurate description by Spielberg. You could say that he has selective amnesia and doesn't count the score to the lost world as devoid of much melody, relying there on instrumentation and rhythms to drive the score forward for that film. But if you go back through Spielberg's catalog, every film had a strong theme or themes that permeated the score and are strongly identified with those films. Williams did create some thematic material for Minority Report, but they do not appear as frequently or as strongly as they would have if this film had been made in the mid-1980s. I think Spielberg's black-and-white score directive would not have been made in the 1980s. We would have had strong themes for Cruz's John Anderton, one for the lead precog Agatha, one for the dead son Sean, and maybe a motif or two for the villains. Instead, it's a strong rhythmic pulse that drives this score. Let's take the big action sequence, for example, starting after the visions of Anderton committing murder become known to others in the pre-crime department. He is chased into an alley by his colleagues, and though the music we hear for the next seven minutes might have a little bit of melody in parts, it's commenting on the scene, not the characters. Here's a bit of the beginning of that action scene when Anderton attempts to escape capture. And you can hear those flutes and xylophones, which are officially a staple in the Williams canon now after being used so heavily in Attack of the Clones and now here. To contrast the music of this scene, 
Imagine the desert chase sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones is attempting to take the truck that is holding the Ark of the Covenant out of Nazi control. The entire scene, all eight minutes of it, is completely dictated by the use of the main Raiders theme and the Nazi theme. Go back to my episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark and listen to my analysis of that sequence for more information. Now, I'm not saying that the music for the big chase fight sequence in Minority Report is bad. I like it a lot. I'm showing that there is officially a change in Williams' compositional style, and in this case, it was partially dictated by the director, but it is still a conscious choice by Williams to obey that order by Spielberg to be forceful in its rhythms, as Spielberg noted in the liner notes. As I watched this big sequence in Minority Report the first time, it felt like the flutes and xylophones were making this a very light and fun scene. The brass is there to make it feel masculine and powerful, but we don't feel much danger, especially in the briefly comic moment when the scene intrudes on a family at dinner time. The flute section is probably ecstatic that they get some prominence in the score for a big action film. The second half of the scene takes place after Anderton gets away from his colleagues, but literally runs into the federal agent played by Colin Farrell that's looking to take Anderton's job. This leads into a big scene in a car factory that starts very bold. Not one flute or xylophone can really be heard here.
it's time for Colin Farrell and Tom Cruise to fight. Two big masculine men with flutes and xylophones scoring the fist fight. At least we get the cool boom in here. The end of this long sequence brings us back to some Golden Age Williams writing, with a great brass fanfare to celebrate Anderton escaping for good in a newly made car. I like the music for this long sequence, but it is nowhere near as fun as the scene when Anderton is trying to escape capture while in his car. The cars of 2054 are not driven, they run on a sort of magnetized roadway that take you to your destination. I love the string writing in this scene, especially underscoring Anderton's desperation as he tries to figure out how someone could have faked the prevision. Once the pre-crime department finds out that Anderton is in his car, the car is redirected to pre-crime. Anderton gets out of his car in the middle of a busy roadway, and this is where the scene gets great, musically and visually.
Such exciting music, even with the flutes and xylophones. And that might be the last time you hear me editorialize on the way flutes and xylophones dilute the strength of the music, at least in this episode. The three themes Williams wrote for Minority Report are very dissimilar from each other, giving us some very unique representations of some of the characters in the film. The first one we hear is for the pre-crime department, working to stop a red ball murder of passion, which is scheduled to take place in a matter of minutes. The race against time is signified by the urgent flurry of notes played mostly on keyboard and seemingly synthesized woodwinds. There is a similarity to the conspirators theme from JFK here, especially with the wooden stick knocking in the background. This undercurrent of the theme is backed up by a series of tones on the keyboard that spans two measures, emulating a response and call mode. Things heat up when Anderton finds the right house to barge into and stops the murder from happening. Great use of the entire orchestra here, though the pre-crime theme goes away. The resolution to the scene is played out with the pre-crime theme returning.
Spielberg and John Williams haven't really given us a proper jump scare in the movie since Jaws, but they provide a nice one in Minority Report. Anderton is forced to take Colin Farrell's Danny Whitwer into the room where the precogs stay, something that has been expressly forbidden. After they have a brief chat, everyone except Anderton leaves. He snaps his fingers over Agatha, which prompts her to grab his hand forcefully after a brief moment of quiet. Agatha asks, can you see? He looks up at the screen that displays her visions, and he sees a woman drowned in a lake. Williams gives us a female voice to call out on the shot of the dead woman underwater. The dead woman is Anne Lively, who we will later find out was Agatha's mother, killed when she cleaned up her life and wanted to be reunited with her daughter. This theme comes up every time we see the death scene, especially the haunting vision of her lifeless body underwater, her hand floating over her face. A slightly longer performance of this theme by the singer Deborah Dietrich comes when Anderton begins digging into Anne Lively's past. Dietrich has said that her performance of the theme on the score affected Spielberg so much that he said, quote, it got me right in the giblets. High praise indeed. The third theme of the film is the highlight of the score, allowing Williams to strike a very human tone into the film. The theme is for Anderton's son, Sean, who was kidnapped when he was six years old, and ten years later is believed to be dead. It's a very tender theme, as it should be for a very young boy and its introduction comes in the flashback scene when Anderton dreams of that fateful day when Sean was kidnapped. Because it's a dream, Williams chooses to make this music ethereal, playing Sean's theme on synthesizers and a light clarinet.
Williams puts more emotion into Sean's theme with each successive performance. The next time it's played is during the climactic scene when Anderton, with Agatha in tow, enters the apartment of the man that he is predicted to kill. After seeing a bunch of photographs of children on the bed, he notices a photo of Sean. Tom Cruise's tears break your heart, but so does Sean's theme here. Sounds like a synthesized children's choir. So did you notice that DS Ire cameo at the end? I had never caught on to it until just now. And now the kicker. Later on, Agatha has a vision of what Sean might have done with his life had he lived. The performance by Samantha Morton as Agatha is so great here. She's very tender as she mentored Sean's days in college and eventual marriage proposal. The music perfectly matches that, giving us Sean's theme in the strings and then the woodwinds. This might be one of the few music cues in the film that doesn't rely on synthesizers. In the middle of all this science fiction action and talk of predestined futures, Spielberg gives us plenty of time to catch our breath with this scene and understand a bit more about the human side of John Anderton. Think of the scene with Indy and Marion in the submarine in Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
or when Elliot shows off his toys to E.T. And as always, John Williams is there to underline the point. If there is a fourth theme, it's for the metallic critters that read people's eyes to determine their identity. This comes 88 minutes into the movie, after we see an homage to a clockwork orange as Anderton's eyes are pried open to have them replaced. And as a side note, kudos to Tom Cruise for doing this quote-unquote stunt himself. Pre-crime is looking for Anderton, and they descend on the apartment building where he is recuperating from the surgery. The critters dispatched through the apartment are called spiders, S-P-Y-D-E-R-S. John Williams created a theme for them that is equally terrifying and comic, a sort of buzzing sound created by the brass section and coupled with the strings. I vividly remember smiling big as I heard this theme for the first time while watching the movie. It had a hook that was instantly memorable, and I couldn't get enough of it. Once Anderton immerses himself in a tub full of ice water, his body temperature drops so he can't be recognized by the thermal scanners.
It seems to work as the spiders search the bathroom, find nothing, and then appear to leave. Then a bubble comes out of Anderton's nose, pops at the surface, and attracts the attention of a spider. It's at this point when I always get goosebumps, whether I'm watching the film or even just listening to the score. The spider theme comes back just as menacing as before, especially because we suddenly see all ten spiders coming back. I think it's menacing mostly because of the silence that comes before it. Music-wise, that's my favorite part of the movie, and unfortunately the theme for the spiders is not heard again until the end credits, which was a small consolation for me. Another great scene, well, great musically, if not just pretty good otherwise, is the scene in which Anderton returns to pre-crime to try and find the minority report inside Agatha's head that could prove he's not going to kill a man he's never met. The scene begins with Anderton, his face distorted to be somewhat unrecognizable, in the bowels of pre-crime with his original eyes in a bag so he can enter restricted areas. There's a nice march-like cadence that is followed by sawing strings. When I listened to this music for the first time while watching the film in the theater, my ears perked up. It sounded very familiar. I couldn't quite place it though, but it was definitely music I had heard before. I just couldn't figure it out. So I continued to enjoy the scene, including the weirdly comic moment when Anderton's eyes roll down the hallway before he catches one of them before they fall down a grate. So have you figured out where this music comes from? If you can't figure it out right away, don't worry about it. It took me almost a year to figure out where I'd heard this music before, and the answer was sitting in my own video library. 
The music is extremely identical to the opening title music written by Alan Silvestri for the 1992 film Death Becomes Her. Take a listen. John Williams has said that he's too busy to listen to other composers' music. But perhaps Spielberg suggested something like Sylvester's music to Williams in the spotting sessions, and Williams complied while trying to make it sound original. The music that ends this scene is quite fun. Williams takes the pre-crime theme, which we haven't heard for a while in the film, and highlights the urgency of the moment as Anderton takes Agatha and the two flush themselves down the drain in order to escape. The big finale, in which Anderton's boss is discovered to have killed Anne Lively, features no thematic material, and there really isn't a place for it. Since Anderton himself never got his own thematic material, and since there wasn't a villainous theme written, the music here just comments on the scene with some tense, low strings and rhythms to keep it moving. After the resolution of the scene, Sean's theme is used in the brief epilogue when we see Anderton reunited with his wife, pre-crime shut down, and the precogs reading books on a secluded island. It's the only music that would work to serve as a resolution to the entire film, and it works very well.
Given the brief time he had to work on creating this score, Williams managed to give us music that doesn't feel cobbled together or written with little regard to the story. The sentiment that the score is Williams' first in black and white for Spielberg is definitely true, and it doesn't really take sides, except when it comes to making us grieve for Sean. Anderton himself is not a one-sided movie hero. He does some bad things, and he has a drug addiction. This anti-hero character is not new for Tom Cruise. Think of his work as Ron Kovic in Born on the Fourth of July, or even Jerry Maguire. The film earned just $132 million in the United States, not even good enough to crack the top 15 domestically. But worldwide, it earned another $220 million for 10th place in the worldwide box office rankings. So far, that gave John Williams two releases in 2002 that earned lots of money, and he was just getting started. Once the score for Minority Report was finished in mid-May, just one month before the film's release, Williams did not have a time for a break. He visited his old friends at the Boston Pops for several concerts in May, June, and July, but knowing full well that two more film scores needed his attention. We'll learn more about that on the next episode, which will detail the work Williams did for the score Chamber of Secrets. I hope you're learning a lot about the career of John Williams through this podcast, and I am deeply grateful to those of you who have been with the journey since the beginning. I am just as thankful to those of you who came late to the party and will have made your way through this show in due time. I'm learning a lot, and I'm having as much fun making each episode as you are listening to them. Thanks for joining me, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>